When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This was the first president that took social media by storm, even though you were all things communication. I'm guessing you didn't vet a lot of those tweets. How about none? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Phil, which means you're on fill in the blanks and... I am very excited today. I'm talking to somebody that I've not met before, but I'm really proud to meet. My guest today is a behind-the-scenes political insider, and I'm going to ask him about that, why it's always been behind the scenes, because he certainly has enough knowledge and savvy to flip to the other side if he wanted to. His reach and influence has been rarely matched anywhere else in politics. He has been helping politicians get elected to the most powerful positions in the country for decades, manifesting huge upsets, overseeing landslides, managing entire sea changes in the American electorate. This gentleman is a master strategist, which we'll put some meat on that bone when we talk. He's a consultant, pollster, communications expert. He's a best-selling author. He's a media personality, and he's host of an influential cable news program. He's also a charitable organizer who has helped thousands of disabled vets, which really warms my heart. Now, you agree with him or not, he has been involved in some of the most important events in recent political history. Now, politics have sides, and sides have controversial issues. You're going to have an opinion here about some of the things that this gentleman says. The gentleman I'm talking about is Sean Spicer. Now, Sean Spicer is no stranger to controversy, criticism, and sometimes just outright attacks on his character. And at one point, he took the job as White House press secretary. And when he did that, despite being a behind-the-scenes guy, he came into the job with, I think, arguably, we could probably find data about this, He may have been the individual to move into that job with the highest recognition profile of anybody that took the job. Those who didn't know him soon had an opinion. So today we're going to pull the curtain back and hear from Sean what was really going on and how he came to know as much as he does about politics. So I could spend a whole hour talking about your background, Sean, but thank you for being here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for the kind introduction and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Well, you've been doing this for a long time. You don't look old enough to have all of the (laughs) experience that you do. I don't know how that happened, but years have been kind to you, particularly with all the stress that you've been under. Right now, you're the host of Spicer & Company, which is on Newsmax. It's at 6 p.m. weekdays. Congratulations on that. It's being received very well, correct? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, when I started the show, Dr. Phil, about two and a half years ago, uh, you know, we, we were a nascent channel. We were the fourth or 
fifth show on the network. And, uh, and I, the first time I got my ratings, I'm sure you're very familiar with this. I looked down at the number and I was just like, okay, that's it. <laughs> I think, and, and over the last, this is a typo, right? <laughs> I was like, are we missing a number in there? <laughs> I thought a few more people would tune in. I mean, I, I don't even think my whole family was watching. And, uh, and over the last two and a half years, Newsmax has really hit a stride. The show has hit a stride. We are now the fourth largest cable news network. And and the cool thing about Newsmax, just my selfless plug here, is you know it's if you got cable, direct uh, files, whatever you can watch it. But we also stream for free. So if you're a cable cutter and you want to watch Spice Run Company every night at six, you can literally just go to Newsmax.com, go to our YouTube channel, whatever, and just for free watch it. So. It's kind of cool being on that that uh, having that ability as well, where people who who have cord cut will come up all the time and say, "Hey, I love watching the show. I got rid of cable." Well, tell people what they're going to find when they tune in. What's the tone of what they're going to hear? So uh, it's interesting you use the word tone. The, 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 I think we have probably the most informative political show on cable, and and I don't mean to brag on that, but. I'm the only person that hosts a show that was in the game, right? It's the way I, I sort of look at it is it's like when you're watching a tell uh, a sporting event and and one of the people doing color commentary is a former athlete and they're telling you where they're what was going on in the game what it's like you know what they're giving you their experience when i look at politics i've been the white house press secretary 23 years in the military six years at the rnc and uh, you know countless numbers of campaigns so instead of speculating what's going on, I can tell people, tell viewers, hey, at this point in the campaign, this is what's happening. This is what would this, you know, this poll number would signal or whatever. So we give people, I think, a unique insight, but going back to the way you phrased the question, we, we sort of look at Spice Run Company as an opportunity to have civil discussions. We've never yelled at a guest. We are very honest about where we come at stuff, but I've had some of the biggest liberals on our show who love coming back because we don't we want to engage in a in a in a really insightful discussion and i think there's plenty of places you can go if you want to see a food fight on television uh but what i want is a viewer to walk away saying i learned more about politics or how government works than anywhere else and and i heard a really good constructive argument so the the tone of our show is civil it's respectful and it's informative you would agree that you're right not left on the political oh, spectrum. Proudly. I'm a very proud social and fiscal conservative. Um, and, and that's what I mean, I'm very open about that. I don't think anyone who's read the first two or three lines of my bio, I think would get that. But uh, I'm very proud of it. And that's that's what I mean, though, is I'm open about the bias that I come from it. But I'm also I want to know why people from the other side or from a different opinion believe what they do. So that's why we'll have on guests that completely are diametrically opposed to maybe a position or a policy because I want to suss that out and say, okay, how do you defend this? Or what do you, why am I wrong when I say X? And so I, I think, but, but being open about where I come from is I think helps the show uh, because people know what they're buying. Well, help me with this, Sean, if you will, because I'm looking at this from a psychological perspective and <laughs> it's really frustrated me, particularly in the last, I don't know, I haven't timelined it out, but I'll say the last five or 10 years, and it's getting worse by the minute, probably since I walked through the door today. But we don't seem to have the attitude that you're describing, where the right's willing to listen to the left, the left's willing to listen to the right right now. I saw a study recently that one third of college students felt like it was okay. In fact, the thing to do to yell down speakers that you disagree with as opposed to listening to them, having an intelligent debate. 
learning why they think the way they do. And that didn't used to be the case. On university campuses, we went to have an exchange of ideas. Now it is to stamp out those ideas, not listen to those ideas. And you say the tone, I have to say, whether you agree with Sean or not, he is absolutely accurate that that is the tone of his show. He does not yell. He does listen. He gives them the opportunity to say their side of the argument, and he may disagree with it vehemently, but respectfully. Yep. Why do you think we've lost that? I'll get to it, but it's funny you bring up college campuses. I've spoken uh, at probably 15 to 20 college campuses in the last year and a half. Actually, I forgot about COVID, probably not two years, three years. Um, Everything from the University of Pennsylvania to Berkeley, I think it's become cool. It's the new, it's what, it's what the left is teaching folks to do in particular. And I know there are some folks I, I, uh, you know, that, that aren't as respectful on the right from sometimes, but it's, it's the, the, the college campuses are where it starts. I think social media is a huge influence in this. People feel like they can do it, get away with things um, that they couldn't, if they were talking to your face. And I think on college campuses, I, I remember I went to, one of the schools, and I was doing the pre-brief with the the administrators and stuff. And I said, I said, can you walk me through your policy about what happens if someone makes an outburst? Because unfortunately, that's become the norm. And they said, well, the first time we let them say their thing. The second time, you know, we ask them to respect their thing. And then the third time, and I said, wait, wait so you're telling me that they get three bites at this before, you know, uh, because that that you you do anything? And the guy's like, well, it's it's about free speech. And I said, well it's not about free speech. It's about respect. I mean, there are people in the audience that are there to, to engage, to ask a question, to listen. So it's, it's, it's not about just that one person in a 500 person room who gets to dominate. But unfortunately that's the culture that's being fostered, especially among folks, younger folks on college campuses and high school. That's something that they're taught is, is an okay behavior. Um, and I think that the left in particular gives voice to that. It teaches them to stand up and to, you know, it, it's, it's, when you look at the protests that are going on about public policy, what's going on in the Supreme Court, it's not the right that's that they're putting up the fence for. It's it's because the guys on the left aren't happy. You know, when Biden, when when Trump was elected, I can't believe the amount of security that was put up around places, the number of schools that were canceled and told people, oh, you need to take a day off. And it's there is a I, I think a fostering of this behavior and of this attitude on the left that this is how you you know, behave now, unfortunately. Um, and it was that way when I was in the press briefing room, um, that the reporters thought it was okay to be disrespectful to each other and yell over another person to disrespect a colleague to, as long as it got them attention. Um, and we reward that on social media. We said a clip goes viral, a tweet goes viral when somebody does an outrageous thing, it's not considered rude anymore. I mean, the way that my mother and father raised me, that would have gotten me sent to my room. Now we sort of give them a cable contract if they do that. And you've been the focus of that as well. (laughs) You've had people attack you and the things that you said. You said you're the one person on the air that's been a player in the game. You were in the Trump White House and you saw what was going on in that White House. This is something that a lot of people speculate about, but they weren't there for. You were there in the early going. What was it like inside the Trump White House when you were there? 
what was the methodology? What was the thinking? What did you have to manage? Because you were the one that was communicating. I know he was communicating by Twitter a lot, but you were right. communicating directly with the press. What was that like? You know, it, it was intense. Uh, some days, unbelievably chaotic, and it was transformational, though. Um, it was interesting. I, I approached the job, I think, in a very traditional sense. I said, oh, I've been around Washington. I've, I've, I've watched Dana Perino and Ari Fleischer and all these folks go before me. And I thought, okay, I know how what the model is, if you will. And the problem is I'd never really factored in initially that Trump wasn't the tradition. I mean, I, you know, he definitely didn't run a traditional campaign, but I thought, okay, he'll fall into the traditional role. And so I built a team and an office and a structure that sort of assumed that we would have an, a, a traditional White House. We didn't. And so there was a lot of adapting and saying, okay, I, to your point, normally you didn't have a president or a principal that was leading on the communications front. They would look at their press person in my, all my years of doing this and say, okay, put something out on this or draft me up something. Um, you were the one traditionally, the press person to lead the communications effort in the Trump White House, he led them. And that took some adapting and some getting used to um, that. So, it, it, and, and, you know, to, to get back to the, the atmosphere, it, it was, at times personal vitriolic uh but it was unbelievably intense i mean I, I i can't you know you started off this thing with some very kind comments about you know i i think i lost 10 years of my life in those six months <laughs> well i can well imagine you had two jobs actually you were communications director and press secretary correct correct how do you do both of those things because the communications director is a lot of forward planning correct that's right Yes, the communications director is the person who's thinking about tomorrow, next week, next month, saying, okay, how do we look at something with a whole of government approach and say, okay, how do we get the agencies, the departments, craft a message that we can execute? The press secretary lives in the day, um, and there's two different staffs. They work well and, and side by side, but you're right. Uh, it, it was sort of, and there's a variety of reasons that would take an entire podcast to go into, but, uh, you know, if I could have found somebody earlier, I would have. I, I did find a communications director probably the second or third month who stuck around for a little while. It, it was not helpful to have two roles. Um, and it was one of the things that I look back on and say, you know, I, and, and people had advised me against it. But again, there were reasons we did what we did um, at the time that made sense. It's just looking back on it, you go, you know, having two roles at that level is never a good idea. Yeah. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Now, this was the first president that really took social media by storm and used it in a direct way. And you being communications director and press secretary, I'm guessing even though you were kind of all things communication, I'm guessing you didn't vet a lot of those tweets. How about none? <laughs> uh, I don't think there was a single instance that I, I looked at one there were a couple times where he said I might be doing X or something, but now he he tweet first and tell me later. Did anybody? Uh, Dan Scavino, who headed his social media team, sometimes was 
intimately involved. But, you know, I always said between, you know, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., you got the tweet that said, you know, I'm proud to support the da 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 And then, you know, after five and before nine, you got the so-and-so is a total jerk. <laughs> Those were all him. Did you ever counsel him about the name calling and derogating people's character? Because he did character attacks, character assassination, yeah. which, you know, I've studied you all the way back to your college campus days. Oh you've never taken that approach. You've never given oh. that advice in a campaign to anybody. You've objected to it when people use that strategy with you. Yeah. What did you say to him about that sort of thing when he went after people calling them fat, ugly, dumb, moron, whatever he might say? Yeah. I mean, first, I, I it's just not how I was raised, right? This is, I, I think, um, it, again, it was it's a sense of value that my parents instilled on me and that my Christian faith guides me by. But there were times when I would suggest to him, here's why I don't think a particular strategy may be the smartest. But at the end of the day, one of the things that people forget about Trump was every time somebody from the, quote, establishment or professional class told him something, don't do this, do this. Most of the time he did what he wanted and he had a record of saying, you know, I was told not to do this. I did X anyway. And I, you know, I, I came out more successful or I won or I defeated that person. So the problem to be blunt is that there's not, it's one thing to give him advice or to say, Hey, I think we could be more effective doing this way, or this is going to take us off message. But Trump sort of looks at, at a lot of the folks in politics and said, if you guys are so smart, I'd never be elected. And I would have never done this. And I would have never been successful here and here and here. So frankly, there's just, I don't think for a lot of individuals in the political world, they've got in his mind a, a strong track record of being right when it comes to telling him what to do. And he takes that into consideration when he makes a decision. Yeah. I didn't grow up around media or television, didn't get involved in it till I was 50 years old, but I learned things once I got into it. And we had a budget here for Dr. Phil where we could buy time on radio, off air sort of promotional things. But I learned really fast the difference between earned media and purchased media. I learned if we had a really big story that resonated with the public, we could get tens of millions of dollars of earned media that there's no way we could buy that. We right. didn't have the budget to buy that, and it wasn't for sale like on the morning shows or a lot of the shows, even if you had the money. It seemed to me that as much as he appeared to be a loose cannon, you had someone that was driving the news cycles and creating earned media in the hundreds of millions of dollars that could have never been purchased. He, he could own a narrative in, in 10 seconds. I mean, if he woke up and sent a tweet, regardless of whether it was an attack or a support for something, that became the story. And he knew it. He knew early on how his actions, his statements, his tweets drove media. Uh, and they still do today. I mean, the, the littlest things that he does, reporters uh, and, and folks online are captivated by. So I think he, he understands how to utilize media that in, in a way, frankly, that I don't think any politician ever will um, in the future, because he's willing to engage in a very personal level in a way that I've never seen throughout my career. I mean, most of the time, as I said earlier, people are like, hey, let's craft something up and make sure that everybody's in agreement and run it by the entire staff and poll test it. Trump, it's all gut. And 
I think when you, as I said earlier, you can disagree with the style and sometimes the substance, but he has a track record of showing when he does it his way, he ends up getting what he wants. Whether or not that's what what everyone agrees is the greater good is up for debate sometimes, you know, depending on how, how he's going after someone. But I think the, the broader point is, is that he understands how to utilize media in a way that I don't think I've seen anybody harness. Well, I guess the people that criticized him the most fed the monster the most because <laughs> if he would say something that was just outrageous in attacking someone their character getting personal going outside the lines and he certainly colored outside the lines they were the ones that would throw gas on the fire which made it work and he seemed right. to understand that yeah and he still does and that's i mean it's not i think his his background in in media and in New York politics, in New York real estate, and then obviously with NBC and such, he understood what makes a good story and how to make something go viral and get attention. And so he's used that in politics in a way that, as I said, I, I've never seen anybody do on that kind of level. Let me read you a quote. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. Sean Spicer. I've heard that. Who wrote that? Uh, uh, I think one of our uh, press staff. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't want I, I, that line in particular. There, that was part of the we call the topper of a of the first briefing. Um, there were several people involved. When you are the one that gets up and says that, and as one that says things sometimes, and you rely on people give it to you. I'm assuming you're not out there counting heads. <laughs> Since somebody gives you this, are you relying on fact checkers? Are you trusting that so, this so is... Can I... Yeah, please. Uh, look, I I think that will somehow just put it on my grave, grave site. Um, I, I know that's going to be on the tomb. Um, but not to dwell on this, or, but, but at the time, the idea was, and again, I've admitted it over and over again. Was that sloppy? Was that the wrong? Yes. Okay. So I'm not justifying anything. But what I think the goal was at the time, if you remember, we woke up, we had had false claims about the president removing a statue of Martin Luther King out of the Oval Office. That was false. We had been attacked for, I mean, we hadn't even been in office for, for 24 hours. And we wake up the morning after the inauguration, and there's several cable TV outlets talking about that. And the president was, was I think, rightly so upset that after going to work for the first day where he got a bunch of you know, executive orders and executive action signed, this is what some folks were focused on. Anyway, the way that I approached this was, hey, look, if you look at all of the live streaming and the different um, social media platforms that exist now that didn't exist even four years ago, 10 years ago. It's sort of like having that conversation between when TV was invented and not, right? There, I thought if I phrase this in a way that encapsulates, and I think the key word was audience, right? Uh, or as the, the thing goes on ever in person or something like this, the idea was not to focus on the number of bodies on the national mall witnessing it, but to try to talk about interest, to try to focus on 
you know, people live streaming it on Twitter and, and watching it on, on digital platforms and on websites that I didn't think would be controversial because many of those weren't available five or four or eight or 12 years prior. So, you know, but again, was it sloppy? Yes. Yeah. At this point, everybody jumped on this and oh, yeah. so it became a back and forth. It just seemed like the longer you chewed it, the bigger it got. It, it was not the, <laughs> that was not the best first day. Yeah, not the best first day. Do you think that colored your relationship with the media from that point forward? Unequivocally, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any way to deny that that sort of, for, for I knew a lot of the folks in that press briefing room. I had a lot of relationships that had existed for years. But I think for a lot of folks, um, who I didn't know, that was sort of, that wasn't probably the best coming out. What I'm talking about is you were shaping the RNC and their strategies and stuff for years before this. So right. you had relationships with these people. Did they think you had gone over totally to the dark side when you stepped up and started speaking on his behalf? Did they think you had been programmed by him? I think there was a lot of people who had a lot of questions uh, in terms of what my motives were or where I, you know, what, what, what I had become. Um, and I think in some cases, that some people just frankly didn't know me and were making you know, wild assumptions about who I am as an individual, or what I thought or what I believed. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't know that I really cared that much about that part. But, yeah, there was definitely open speculation about, like, I can't believe he said this. Or why would he do this? And this isn't the guy we knew. Um, and in many cases, I think there was a lot of embellishment about some of these individuals trying to pretend that there was a sort of a, a long relationship that existed because they wanted to be part of the stories themselves. So they say, I've known Sean for 15 years. And it's like, dude, I, I don't really know you. Uh, but I think that they wanted to get in on the story as well. So, you know, they made it seem as though we had had some longstanding prior relationship. But, but yeah, there are a handful of folks in that room that I knew fairly well. Um, and I think they sort of were like, I didn't run the angry leprechaun is not something we've seen before. Some of the quotes were Sean Spicer lacks the guts or integrity, refuse orders to go out and lie. He's a failure in his job on the first day. Another one said, I work in political PR. I spin all the time. What Sean Spicer did today was Soviet-style propaganda mixed with Nazi tactics. I just wondered how you felt about those things when they're saying them about you, about the crowd size at the inauguration. What about the running of the country? Again, I think it was an e I was an easy target, and um, and look, I like I said, I just want to be clear to to your audience. Like I don't like I said, I I I, I look at that day as probably one of the top five days that I wish I could do a do over on, and if I thought about it harder, it probably is number one or two. Um, so it's not like I'm trying to excuse my behavior or how I came across that day. But to your point, I, do I think that was you know is as an enduring legacy? I, you know, for a lot of these guys, when they screw up. They get the ability to just move on or edit their story and say, oh, I didn't I didn't do this. Um, and some of them have been really big whoppers. What stories that have been gotten wrong, um, sources that were false, narratives that were pushed that were not true. I, I just there are days in which I, I get a chuckle out of the fact that if, if they were to judge me the same way that they wanted to be judged, I wonder what the press coverage would look like. Yeah. Did he ever straight up ask you to lie? No. Is there anything he ever asked you to say that you thought that's a lie? 
whether he believed it or not, you thought that nah, that's a lie. So there's, a, I don't mean like, there's days when you know you might get a bad piece of economic news or something, and you'd say, hey, we got to focus on you know the strength of the stock market and the resiliency of you know uh, of the of the manufacturing base or whatever it is. So there's a difference between lying and sort of highlighting you know what we call in the industry spinning or putting the best face. And and I don't think that's unique, but I think there's a difference between a bold face lie where it's like, hey, there's you know two plus two, go out and say it's five. That's a demonstrable false thing to say. Um, if you said two plus two, well, it's not as big as five and it's a little you know larger than three, you're not saying four, but you're not lying. I mean, I don't mean to beat around the bush, but I think there's a big difference between lying to somebody and and putting the best face on on a you know a, a policy or, or an action. Well, nobody's cornered that market on the left or the right, correct? That's true. Yes. Yeah. When you guys get into that press room and say the things that you do say, now, let's get away from the controversial things for a minute. Just what you do report, who gives you that content? Because you're speaking on behalf of the White House slash president. Who tells you what? that president slash administration wants put out there? So there's a combination of things. One, you're looking at what's driving the news that day. So, you know, right now, you know, you've got Ukraine, baby formula shortages. So you know that you're going to want to address those things, right? So there are there are stories and narratives that are in the bloodstream already. You know you got to address those. Then there are scheduling things. Then there's legislative and policy priorities that you know, the Office of Legislative Affairs or the council's office is in the middle of doing something. And they'll, they'll come to you and say, hey, can you highlight this today? Maybe the president's going on a trip somewhere. You want to get ahead of that. Or there's, you know, an action or meeting that's taking place. You want to highlight. It. So you put it all together. You go over with your staff. You run it by the, the other key stakeholders, the Office of Legislative Affairs, general counsel's office, um, Office of Public Liaison, and, and find out what everybody's doing. There are, there are press assistants and assistant press secretaries that are working among the departments, the agencies, and, and internally within the White House that are sort of vacuuming up all of that kind of information, those announcements, those policy priorities, and, and helping to formulate what that briefing is going to look like. And in many cases, you know, the president himself um, would, would say, hey, make sure you mention this or you know, let's not highlight, you know, I mean, you, it's not just what you say. There's, there's other things that you don't want to get in the middle of or you might want to downplay. Because you can't talk to somebody on every one of the topics that are going to come up. Somebody gives you a briefing. These are our points. This is what we're going to talk about. No, so we so we would meet probably two to three times with my press staff, right? So we'd start in the morning and kind of start with a list. We knew what the stories were that were driving the morning morning shows. We could look on social media, see what was moving. We would know what was coming down the pike. And we would sort of start to create that briefing document. Um, over a three-hour period, and and so I had a couple people on staff that we would be funneling information, facts, uh, statements to, and saying, "Hey, make sure we put this in there." And then as the morning went on, we would check in, and it's kind of like a script. And you're going back and saying, "Hey, that's not happening anymore. Let's get it out." Hey, they just added this to the schedule. Let's put it in. But um, it's a dynamic document that's happening between first thing in the morning, literally first thing in the morning, uh, and, until you go out there. Yeah, You probably had the most unpredictable president, certainly <laughs> in, that I can recall. 
in my lifetime, you had to deal with what he had said in the last 24 hours. And we all know there was a lot of hyperbole in things that he said. Was that part of the briefing? All right, here's what he said yesterday. We've got to go out there and try to contextualize this, defuse this, support it in some way. Was that part of the briefing? Absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, just, and I think it's, it's current, I mean, it's always going to be part of the briefing, no matter who's president, that the president will make a statement or a policy decision. And the job of the press secretary is to either keep pushing the pedal on that, to give it momentum, to clarify it. Um, you know, you've seen this in this White House, especially the last few weeks, uh, whether it's COVID related, they had a statement um, on vaccines the other day that they had to go out and massage. But there is, it's a it's a constantly an issue and sometimes the president nails it right they got the message out and you want to you want to keep that going the momentum behind that story or that narrative so you go out and you 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 damp it up um sometimes the president would you know would walk in and say mr president uh this is how what you said is being interpreted you know some people are taking it this way some of the other it's probably in our best interest to clarify it um so that's but i think that's that's going to be a job of any press secretary how much does the press secretary make, salary-wise? Um, so I think I made one seventy-nine, one hundred seventy-nine thousand, um, and it's been raised since then. So it's like one eighty-five now. It, it gets a cost of living increase. The top. So the way it works in the White House is there's what they call commissioned officers, assistants to the president, deputy assistants to the president, special assistants. Those are called commissioned officers. Um, they. There's a number of them that by statute they get the assistance. I think there's 20 of them. Those are the closest advisors to the president of the United States and the press secretary and communications director are assistants to the president. Then it goes down and with each rank, the salary goes down. And then below that is just the White House staff. Um, they Their salary is determined by an overall budget. Okay. Now, Sean, you could make that selling shrimp out of a van down by the river. <laughs> so... Why in God's name would anybody, this is like standing in front of a firing squad every day for $179,000 a year. So why? Why, why would you do this? Um, look, I, 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 for a few reasons. One is I, I, it, it was a, it was a dream job. Um, it was something that frankly, I didn't even think I, I my career trajectory did not put have press secretary in it. It's just not someone from the RNC generally does not, not generally doesn't end up in that position. It was completely a unique opportunity. Number one, number two, I believe in service. I've served, you know, in my 20, 24th year, almost going to my 24th year of serving in the military. I've served 10 different members of Congress. Um, you know, I, I believe in this country. I believe in the party. Um, I, I mean, you know, the campaigns don't pay that much better either. Um, so I've, I've lived my entire adult life until I left the White House on either a military salary, a government salary, or a campaign salary. So the money was never been the thing for me. I could have left, gone down to K Street in Washington for a long time. But th this to me was a, a, an opportunity to be part of history. I mean, Trump, I think I was one of the only other people that had worked, you know, in a White House. Um, so I felt I had a unique opportunity to really be part of helping to shape uh, and promote the, the agenda of, of the president. Well, I've said many times there are lots of different kinds of currency. There's monetary currency, emotional currency, spiritual currency, social currency, and you're saying exactly that. The currency here 
monetary wasn't number one for you. It was a matter of service. And you're still a commander right now in Naval Reserve, correct? That's correct. So service has not just something that's uh, virtue signaling for you. This has been a life commitment for you in serving your country and in still in the military as a commander. And thank you for your service, by the way. You're very welcome. I, I you know, I think that there is something I, I the, the upside is I have found something that I love to do. And when you when you can do something, wake up every day that you're passionate about, um, I think that's that's the greatest way to go through life. And for me, I've never had uh, whether I was at the RNC, on Capitol Hill, in the military, like I've always loved what I'm doing, and I'm blessed in that way. And so, you know, if I can provide, if I can provide for my family, which you know, let's face it, $179,000 for a lot of Americans is a lot, a lot of money. So, it, you know, we'd never had anything. You know, my wife and I take care of our kids, and uh, we're blessed by that, by what we've been given. But it's never been financial in terms of what what drove me to serve the country, to serve my party, what I believe in. But I think if you can wake up at the end of a career and say, hey, I loved going to work every day. I loved what I did. I was passionate about it. And and as I said, I don't think I've had a job where I haven't had that experience, which is something that I, I truly feel blessed to do. Uh, I'd rather make $179,000 going and getting something that I love doing than you know $300,000 banging my head against the wall every day saying, I hate being here. Of course. If you knew then what you knew now, would you have taken that job? Yes. I would do it differently. Um, but I look at the what I have been able to... I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. You wouldn't be calling Sean Spicer, former communications director and strategist at the RNC, unless I was your Uber driver. Um, so... I've been able to, to meet some amazing people and have some great experiences for both me and my family. And it wouldn't have happened without that opportunity at the White House. I would do it differently. I would, there's a million things uh, that I would change um, some of the interactions that I would have. I, I am a, uh, sometimes to a, to a fault, a, a fairly reflective person. And I think professionally and personally, when you go through an experience, whether it's an interview or a project or an interaction, if you at the end of that can come back and say, Hey, I could have, I want, I, how could I have been a better person? How could I have been a better professional? Um, it makes you, I think, a stronger person. It makes you a better employee, a better leader. If you're constantly looking to improve yourself and what you do for, for, for work. And so, um, I've had a million reflections on how I could have done things differently. Um, but I will forever be grateful for that opportunity in the White House. Was there any moment? during that time as press secretary that stood out that if you had a do over, you would do that moment over? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, we already talked about one, you know, a day one, it will haunt me forever. I don't think that there's anybody that won't, you know, bring that up in, in, in a lot of, you know, forums and, and bios and things like that. So that was up there. And then there are a couple other statements that I made where I stepped in it and it, it, it was, very regretful in, in terms of misstatements that I think came back on me and didn't reflect well on the president or the White House or the administration. And, um, and I took it, I, I still take it very personally. And, um, you know, um, but there were times, everything I'm from screwing up somebody's name to, uh, you know, I, I made a statement uh, that um, regarding Trump's action against um, 
one of the, the presidents in the Middle East in a military action and it got bungled and it got taken out of context. And it, it, it crushed me that some people had been hurt by my statement because it was completely the opposite of what my intention was. And when you say something that unintentionally hurts people um, or people believe that you were trying to hurt them or disparage them, I just, that's, that's just not a feeling that, that I, I'm strong at handling. I mean, like I got this pit in my stomach going, I can't believe people think that I actually believe that or would want to hurt somebody like that. Yeah. You made the statement in April of 2017 about Hitler and chemical weapons. Right. Is that the time you're talking about? Thank you. Yes. Yes. And you made a very clear statement of apology and put that in the proper context after the fact to explain what you really meant and how you really felt. Yeah. I mean, in, in the, again, the, the, the point of the statement at the time was to describe the actions that were going on as horrendous and unacceptable. And the comparison and the analogy that I was making was, was ill-conceived. And it wasn't, it, and, and frankly, like I used to do media training all the time and tell folks, you know, here are like five things you don't do. And one of them was compare anybody to Hitler. And here I was violating my own media training advice. Um, and it, it was taken out of context. It, knowing that people of Jewish faith were hurt by that statement, literally put a pit in my stomach that I, every time it's brought up again, I, I get a little feeling for it again, because it just, it, it was literally a moment where I was trying to describe the heinous actions of an individual and talk about on a scale, how out of proportion they were to anybody else. And it was a dumb analogy to use, but knowing that people found it hurtful just was not, a, was, was something that I, I'll never forget. I've seen you speak about that before and you never miss an opportunity to be clear that that was not a good analogy that you did not mean in any way to trivialize or compare what happened in the Holocaust with anything else. No, I mean, it, it, like I said, it, the intention of the statement was to show how bad Assad. I mean, like, and so it was like he's so bad that even this and 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 the funny part about it is the statement that I made was technically off by a notch. I mean, it was, and it, but it was, there's no excuse for it. It just shouldn't have entered into the vernacular and it did. And that was dumb. Yeah. And I really respect the fact that every time you've had an opportunity to speak about that, you've apologized, made it clear, acknowledged that it was not a good analogy and put in context what you really meant. You've owned it every single time you've ever talked about it since then, and I just really respect you being very clear about that. I hate for people to judge somebody for a misspeak or a misstep in the moment when, in fact, they feel completely differently than what was said in the moment. Yeah, and I think, again, there's difference in my mind between just screwing something up and screwing something up that, you know, as I mentioned, hurt people, right? And so... Uh, it's, it's, if you make a mistake and it's on you and it's like, you just look like a, like a buffoon. Okay. You know, you can own that sometimes, but I think when you do it and somebody takes it in a, in a way that they think that you might have been trying to trivialize something or, uh, disparage them in some way when that wasn't the case, 
I, at least for me anyway, I gave too much Catholic guilt and, uh, just, <laughs> and just, you know, so I, I wanted to make it clear what my intentions were. And, and, and I just, anyway, I, I as you said, I, I think I've been, I hope I've been crystal clear on this. Well, you have been, and you could try to trivialize it, sidestep it or whatever, but you've owned it every time and been very clear about how you really feel about it. I've respected that every time I've seen you talk about it, just yeah, as you it. are today. So I appreciate that. You resigned this position yeah. on July 21st, 2017. It's reported that you abruptly resigned as White House press secretary after vehemently disagreeing with the appointment of Anthony Scaramucci as communications director. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, except, I mean, look, I knew, let, let's back it up. I knew that things weren't going well for me for some of the aforementioned reasons that we've discussed. And so I thought to myself, okay, this is not getting better. The press is not like, you know, the, the relationship isn't getting better. So at some point you're going to either resign or he's going to fire you, but one of the two are going to happen. And so there was a moment when we were looking for staff, as you mentioned earlier, I've been doing two jobs off and on since the beginning of the white house. We needed additional staff. We needed communication support. Um, the president had seen Anthony uh, vigorously defend him in a number of television interviews, and there were some other staff that that had known Anthony that thought he would be helpful. Um, I looked at it as an opportunity, said, okay, if he wants to reshuffle the deck, if he wants a new thing, this is my moment. I can get out now or I can stick around for two more months and hope that I don't get fired. Um, and But I also didn't think, you know, the president was like, okay, you'll say press secretary, Anthony will be communications director. Knowing the job, knowing what the roles are and what the challenges that we face as the Trump White House, I did not feel as though that Anthony would be the right pick for that job. He has a background in finance. He has been very successful in that. Um, I, I just, I've been doing this my whole life. And I said, okay, if, if he wants to do this and he wants to come and do it, then he should be in charge. He, I shouldn't, because it's just not going to gel. It's not going to work. And I, so I, I use that as I said, okay, great, Mr. President, uh, you want to shuffle the deck. You need a, a fresh start. There's no way you can have one with me still here. And um, he was very gracious and said, you know, you're part of the team. We'll find, you know, we can. And I said, no, 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 look, I'll walk away. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and, and let your new team come in and they don't have to have, you know, Sean sitting around here. They can you know, reshuffle the deck and put people in the places that they think and run it their way. But it shouldn't be, you know, two people clashing about strategy every day. And so I looked at it as the right time to, in my mind, do the right thing. How long was Anthony in that job? Uh, from the time that he was announced and the time he left, I think it was 11 days. Yeah. I know Anthony and he claims that with great pride. I think he says 11 <laughs> days, 21 hours, something <laughs> like that. He's had the shortest tenure in the White House, but it just seemed like things were really volatile at that point. They were. When you walked away, were you relieved? Yeah. It was like, a, I, I don't know. It was, it was the opposite of what I was describing a moment ago. It was a sense of a burden being lifted. And um, I mean, it just, I walked into this job thinking, hey, it's going to be White House press secretary. I've seen them all before. You know, I, I like to joke, you call it C-SPAN famous. You know, political people might know who you are. That's about it. And 
I, I couldn't go to the grocery store. Uh, you know, people were making hand gestures that weren't really appropriate, you know, when I was out with my family. And, um, you know, I didn't, there was a, an element in not just being about me, but being about, you know, kind of keeping an eye on, on protecting my family. You know, I, I would walk out of the house every day, you know, five thirty, six in the morning, not get back till nine o'clock at night. And and everyone always said, do you feel safe? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm in the white house. I'm 25 feet from the president. I'm pretty safe. It's my family that is sitting at home with people, you know, calling, dropping by, throwing things at the house. So uh, it was just, it was the right time to, to move on. And, um, and, and get a little bit of life back. I mean, I, I can't begin to explain to people the level of intensity that went along with that job and scrutiny. I mean, there was nothing that I could do um, that somebody didn't find, you know, if a, if a button wasn't buttoned, if the shoe wasn't tied, it was, hey, look at Sean Spicer, can't tie his shoes. And, you know, it's, it's, it, there was a level of scrutiny and personal attack and vitriol that I, it just, was not something that anybody could have ever anticipated or expected. Well, that's why I was saying that's a tough job to willingly take. $179,000 is a lot of money in any country. Certainly, it's a lot of money in America for a family. It just seems like there are a lot of less stressful ways. How did your family take this? You're not a civilian. You're in the game, as you said earlier, but they are civilians. You've got a life aside from this. You're a Boston Red Sox fan. You've got two kids. You're a Patriots fan. So like all of us, you've got interests. You've got family. How do they take it? How do they take all of this? Um, my wife has always been my staunchest defender and supporter. So, I mean, she, she, she bore a lot of the burden just saying, I can't believe so-and-so is saying this about you. Um, she was also, as I mentioned, she was the one at home when – you know, somebody would make a threat. Um, so she, she held down the fort. I could have never done the job without her. Um, my, my mother and uh, you know, my family was an unbelievable support system uh, during my tenure. Um, that being said, it, it was just difficult knowing that they had to be the defender of me. You know, when people would say, you know, something disparaging or, you know, my mom, my wife, my, you know, have to be the ones that stand up and say, that's not who he is. And I, you know, I'm eternally thankful for their love and unconditional support, but um, it, it, I think it was tough on them. Well, it had to be. How did they respond to some of the things in the media, like Saturday Night Live and that sort? Did they think it was funny? Were they offended by it? Um, so my kids were, um, I think, five when I was in the White House. So they they didn't they they knew that. Some people didn't like daddy, yeah. <laughs> but, they were, but they, they, they've now, it's funny. I mean, my son or my daughter within the last stuff, few months found the Saturday night live clips and like, that's you. Obviously they're, they're now both 11. So they, they, they find some of this now funny. Um, you know, again, I think there was, it depends. The first Saturday night live skit, I think was a little funny, well-deserved maybe if, if, you know, if you, if I'm being honest that, you know, it's like, okay, I stepped in it. So this is a little ribbing. Um, I think when it became personal, uh, which is what a lot of the skits kind of did, um, there was a, then it, then they kind of moved into defense mode of, you know, Hey, that was over the top. And I can't believe they said this. Yeah. There's a difference between mean spirited and taking shots at the job or whatever. Right. Some stuff crosses the line. You've written a book called radical nation. Yes. And you talk about 
the Biden administration and the fact that they are pushing us in a direction that a lot of the things that you talked about when you wrote that book had not come to pass when you wrote the book, but they seem to be coming to fruition now. Inflation, the border crisis that we're talking about, some of the K through 12 school indoctrinations, some of the things that were maybe just incubating or being hinted at at the time have become major headline crises now. You were seeing around corners when you wrote that. Whichever side of the debate people want to come down on, you saw around corners about these things coming up. How do you feel about what you referred to, I guess, as a socialist agenda then being so dominant in the headlines now? It's interesting you brought that up. When I wrote Radical Nation, as you point out, like when you put the book to bed, you got a few months before it comes out. As you know, I mean, that's how publishing works. I, I wrote it saying, hey, this is the direction we're headed in. Here's where I think we're, you know, based on this policy, this is pronouncement. And you're right. I mean, every time that when the book came out, I go, holy smokes, Radical Nation literally nailed it. I mean, this is what what I thought was going to happen. And I, I, in a weird way, I hoped I was wrong. I mean, no one wants inflation. No one wants people to suffer. And yet all of these policies, I was telling people, I mean, Radical Nation was supposed to be a warning. Hey, if we don't get things back on track, this is where we're headed. They're going to try to pack the court. They're going to try to make DC a state. Boom, boom, boom. And lo and behold, in the last few weeks, here's what we got again. Let's pack the court. We need to make DC a state again. I mean, it's, if you, to your point, I mean, look, I have a perspective that I talk about very openly, but the point of Radical Nation is to lay out, here are the people, here are the policies they're pushing, and this is the direction we're going on. Maybe people say, great, I like that, but I, I, I am concerned about where we're headed in terms of education, where we're headed in terms of culture, obviously economically. I mean, there's a lot of problems in a lot of these policies, um, and I just, I think that where the where this White House is, and, and I think part of the other thing that I lay out in Radical Nation is the motives. Like I, I think that Joe Biden was pretty open and honest, honestly, during the election or during his candidacy, where him saying these are the policies. I think you had a lot of people who said, "No, no, he won't do that. He's just saying that to get elected." He's doing a lot of what he said he would do, and I think the problem was there are a lot of people who've known Biden for a long time. He's been in Washington fifty years and said, "No, no, no Biden's pragmatic. Pragmatic. He's moderate. He won't do this." And I've been pushing this proposition that he wants a legacy. Um, that is the most progressive president, which is what he said he would do. And again, some Americans might say, great, I'm glad he's doing this. I would argue that, that that's not the Joe Biden that previously has been in Washington for 50 years in terms of the policies um, and, and ideology that, that he's pushing. But that's where we're headed. Do you believe Trump is going to run again? And who do you think will run if he doesn't run? So today, yes, I believe Donald Trump will run again. I think Donald Trump being Donald Trump will flirt four or five times before making it known exactly what his intentions are. Because he, you know, we talked about this, he understands the power of the media and the power of narratives. So he will keep us guessing. But I think that as of today, right now, everything that I've seen and heard is a man that wants to run again and win and get his policies back on track. Um, if he doesn't run, I think. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is clearly the front runner in the Republican Party. Um, but there are 
you know, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, Mike Pence, the former Vice President, they will definitely run. I think Christy Nome of South Dakota, the governor there, will probably run Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Dakota, South Carolina. Um, we are not going to suffer a lack of candidates, nor do I think they will on the Democratic side when Joe Biden doesn't run for re-election. And I, I think that's a fairly big given. Um, I, on, on the Dem side, I will make this prediction. I, I believe that Pete Buttigieg will be the Democratic nominee the next time around. So you think he will be? I do. I think if the establishment Democratic Party believes he is the future, and um, and I think that he is using this position as Secretary of Transportation to really cement some of the deficiencies that he had during his presidential run. Um, I, I mean, I think politically he is a very very strong candidate, and anyone on the right would be a, a, an idiot to dismiss him. If Trump does run, is he electable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you consider where we are right now, we've got the highest inflation in 40 years. The border's a mess. Um, foreign policy, we've got you know, a mess in Ukraine. We've got North Korea threatening stuff. Iran is unstable. What's going on in China? I mean, it just, I, I don't think, I mean, look at what's happening in the midterms right now. People are, are 18 months into Joe Biden saying, hey, I'd like a redo. So if Trump's the nominee, um, most elections where you have an incumbent, if Biden were the incumbent, uh, were to seek re-election, hands down, if he, he, he wins. If Biden doesn't, which I said I'm fairly certain that he won't, it'll depend on who the nominee is. If it is Buttigieg, I think Buttigieg would give him a run for his money. But I think ultimately, based on the last four years, uh, Trump, Trump gets re-elected. Do you think the Republican Party wants him to run again, or do you think they're looking for a new direction, a new generation of leadership? I think most of the party wants him. There are obviously some vocal minority aspects of the party that doesn't. But when you, by and large, look at who people want to run in polls, they'll say Donald Trump. You look at his influence in the Republican primaries right now, Trump-supported candidates do very well for a reason. And you look at the interest that still exists in what he does online, his platforms. I mean, there, he commands a political presence unlike either party has seen, at least in the modern age, and I would venture to say probably going back through history. Do you think that either party is going to listen to Americans enough to put individual liberty and freedom to the forefront again? The reason I ask that question is because I think if you've got a new shovel, everybody wants to dig a hole. And I think when we got into the pandemic and the government got really involved in people's lives and dictating, do this, do that, do the other, it's sometimes hard to give up what you've gotten. You've gotten new control. You've gotten new inroads into people's lives. And I'm just wondering if you think either party will recognize that that's going to be important to Americans. Well, I think the Republicans, I mean, I think generally speaking, when you look at how what states did well and where people are migrating. I think uh, the Republican governors and, and folks on the right definitely, I think, believe much more uh, in individual liberty right now, recognize what the lockdowns did, what the mandates did. And frankly, I think even some of the stuff that we're seeing in schools, when parents watched their kids at home on Zooms and recognized what was going on in classrooms around the country, they got much more involved and said, I want to run for school board. I want to be more involved in my child's uh, curriculum or what's happening in their classroom. 
Um, so I think in many ways, I firmly believe that, that the Republican Party has tried to to harness that. Um, I, I think many folks on the left like the idea of government being more involved. And, and that's, frankly, the, the philosophical and ideological uh, ideological difference between the two parties. You know, from a psychological standpoint, I have the feeling that you really make a mistake if you take any position that rewards bad behavior. And it seems to me that we've done a lot of things in the last two or three years that has rewarded bad behavior. I'm talking about everything from paying people not to work to not prosecuting crimes to a lot of things that, just in my opinion, that if we're not consequating behavior, if we're actually rewarding things we don't want to reoccur, we're getting way off just common sense. I couldn't agree more. I mean, look at, I mean, the idea that you can bash a building or vandalize a building or, you know, smash the window of a police car and there's no consequence for it. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I just remember growing up, there was a sense of right and wrong of obeying the law. And now when somebody breaks the law um, or, you know, even now we're seeing people go to the Supreme Court justices' homes and threaten them. Uh, I, I don't understand how that is acceptable behavior. And to your point, the second that you mainstream that and say, oh, that's fine because um, we have a problem. When you can harm someone or threaten someone or destroy property without consequence or impunity, that's a that's a very dangerous place as a society to be in, as a country. I mean, I, we're only as strong as the laws that we pass. I mean, I, I'm watching lawmakers talk about not enforcing certain laws. I'm like, that's not how the country works. If you don't like the law, there's a process for getting it changed or removed or repealed, but you don't get to go around and pick and choose what you want to obey in this country. And I think we're losing that sense of right and wrong in terms of lawlessness, but also just a sense of decency. And 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 again, there's plenty to go around on both sides. And uh, but I, I think this idea of 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 how we treat each other is not something that um, that that is a good is is where I think it is healthy for the society right now. Well, I agree with you, and I think there are a lot of differences we have. I don't think it's just all get around the campfire and sing Kumbaya because there are major issues about which people have serious differences and those need to be dealt with. It's not just everybody just come together. There are differences, but there are ways to deal with those. You know, we talked about this in the beginning. One, one of the things that there is a prevailing sense that that kind of behavior gets all the attention. And this is, you know, this clip went viral. If you start to look at, you know, I mentioned how Spicer and Company is every night on Newsmax. We're the second highest rated show on the network. If people didn't want to see a civil and respectful discussion of issues and policies, they could tune us out. They come back every night. And I think if you look at podcasts like yours um, and a lot of shows that don't have that animosity, that that sort of angry nature, they do well. So. I think that there's this narrative sometimes that only conflict sells or that it's rewarded. And I think that that isn't entirely true, that there are outlets, there are shows, there are platforms that people are going to because they want a civil, respectful discussion or 
discussion of ideas. So I, I think we also have to start making sure that we we help point people into where I think mo most Americans are, not just the the loud minorities on the on the on the ends of the spectrum. Just because somebody's yelling doesn't mean they should get the most attention. And I've done broadcast on violence, no bail, defunding the police, climate change, the great resignation, shoplifting, implied bias, legalization of marijuana, homelessness, police, CRT, pronouns. And we've had a respectful debate without a voice being raised from either side. It's possible to do, and yeah. you can resolve by learning from the other side. That's what I see you doing. Whether you agree with them or not, you let them have their voice. And that, to me, is the only way you're going to learn why somebody takes the position they do. I commend you for what you're doing, and I can't thank you enough for coming on today and talking about everything that we talked about here. I really appreciate you doing it, and I hope you keep writing, and I hope you keep talking, and I hope people keep listening. Well, Dr. Phil, I. I Thank you for saying that. Thank you for this opportunity. It truly is an honor. I've done a lot of interviews. It 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 truly is an honor to be able to sit down and have this conversation with you after all you've done and some of the amazing people you've had on your show and on your podcast. So I appreciate you including me in the discussion. Well, let's stay in contact. How about it? That's a deal. Everybody, let me remind you, Spicer and Company is on Newsmax. It's at 6 p.m. weekdays. We'll put up links and clips and everything, Sean, so they'll be able to just click right here and find you there. They'll know where you are and when to find you. So we'll get all of that done, and it'll be on all of our sites and social platforms and everything so people can seek you out and find an intelligent and balanced discussion. So, Sean, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So long.